This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This week marks one year since Russian troops invaded Ukraine. And I don't know if you remember what you said to me, but you said, and I quote, gather the leaders of the world, ask them to support Ukraine. And for the first time since the war began, President Biden landed in Kyiv to meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in what some are calling one of the most important trips by a U.S. president since the end of the Cold War. One year later, Kyiv stands and Ukraine stands. Democracy stands. The Americans stand with you and the world stands with you. So why turn up now? Was Biden's trip a show of unwavering support for Ukraine? Was he sending a message to Putin that this war is far from won? Or was this more about shutting down the naysayers at home who want to see America pull back from the war? I'm Joni Grieve, in for Jonathan Friedland, and this is Politics Weekly America. What's worrisome to me right now is that it's, it's just not at all clear uh, that we have any kind of viable... Uh, ending in sight to this conflict. Susan Glasser is a staff writer at The New Yorker and a global affairs analyst for CNN, who co-authored the book Kremlin Rising, which looked at how Russia changed the moment Vladimir Putin gained power. I spoke to her last June when she had just found out she had been given a lifetime ban from entering Russia. It's not significant, really, you know, who's on a list of banned people, but it's, it's, it's the broader issue of what has happened to Russia is something that we should talk about as well, because Putin has used this not only to launch a horrific invasion, unprovoked invasion of his neighbor, but uh, of course, to launch a real serious crackdown inside of Russia itself, uh, which is a significantly more restrictive and autocratic society than it was a year ago using the cover of the war. You know, it's, it's a tragedy for Russia itself that Putin has unleashed, as well as the, you know, the hundreds of thousands, by many estimates, who have uh, become casualties in the war, Russians, as well as uh, even bigger uh, numbers uh, of Ukraine civilians and military. So as we mark one year since the invasion, President Biden visited Kyiv for the first time since the war began. So, Susan, why do you think Biden chose to go to Ukraine at this specific point in the war? Well, you know, I think it was a very dramatic moment to see the surprise visit by a president of the United States. Arguably, it was uh, the most daring kind of war zone visit we've ever seen, uh, certainly in modern times, an American president take. Uh, Other presidents have visited war zones that were substantially under the control of U.S. military forces. There were large numbers of military forces there to protect them, at least. Uh, And here was Joe Biden in Kyiv. He actually had to take a train 
many hours uh, from Poland just to get there rather than fly in. The airspace is not safe, is not controlled by Ukraine. In fact, the air raid sirens were blaring as he walked through the streets, you know, albeit briefly, with uh, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. It was as uh, adeptly choreographed uh, a political photo op as I have ever seen. And if the war turns out as as we hope that it will uh, with, with Ukraine free and whole once again, it will be a defining moment for Joe Biden and his presidency. He staked much on the outcome here. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because I did want to talk about what a pretty remarkable visit this was in terms of the logistics. You know, uh, a lot of attention has been paid uh, to uh, the train that you mentioned, Rail Force One, which took Biden from Poland to Kiev. President Biden's motorcade slipped out of the White House at 3.30 a.m. on Sunday morning to begin a nearly 40-hour journey in and out of Ukraine. There were no flashy motorcades or Air Force One for this journey. Instead, he took an Air Force C-32 to get to Poland, and then at 10 p.m. at night, boarded an approximately eight-car train for a 10-hour journey into Kyiv, arriving in the Ukrainian capital just as the sun was rising. And there was an incredible amount of secrecy around Biden's visit before he arrived in Kyiv. What did you make of the lengths the Biden administration went to to pull this trip off? Yeah, I mean, you know, clearly the planning has been going on uh, for many months on this. Remember that many of the European leaders who've been supporting Ukraine have already visited Kyiv. Biden has really put a lot into the personal diplomacy of making sure that this was not just the United States supporting Ukraine, but that this was NATO and this was Western Europe and Central Europe, that this was, in effect, uh, an alliance. And that is something that's been kind of at the core of what Biden uh, has been trying to do to respond to Putin from day one. And so I think it was particularly significant uh, that he go in person. And of course, Zelensky had already come to the U.S. and made his own very dramatic appearance, giving a special address to the U.S. Congress. It was time for the American president to reciprocate. And I think, of course, it's a symbolic message to Putin, too. Uh, You did not win. You did not succeed in doing what you thought you were going to do in a matter of days. And even as Biden traveled around Kyiv with a heavy security presence, of course, it felt like he really did get a taste of the city. You know, uh, President Zelensky showed him some of the capital's most famous cathedrals and Biden stood in front of a memorial wall to pro-democracy protesters who were shot dead nine years ago on Monday. And he also heard, as you mentioned, something that Kyiv residents have become very accustomed to over the last 12 months, the sound of air raid sirens. So, Susan, what do you think that experience was like for Biden, really experiencing what it is like to be in Kyiv for a day? And how might it shape his understanding of the war? No, look, American presidents live in an extraordinary bubble, uh, right? They are just, you know, by definition, surrounded by so many layers of staff and security that, you know, any kind of real ground truth is almost impossible for them to achieve. Uh, In that sense, it's very significant that Joe Biden has been to Ukraine before. In fact, he had the Ukraine portfolio uh, as part of his service uh, as the vice president for two terms uh, during Barack Obama's presidency. And also, of course, before that, as the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So, you know, Biden is not making a trip of first impression to Kyiv. Obviously, many other world leaders have visited Ukraine before Biden did. But in the eyes of President Zelensky and Ukrainian citizens, 
How significant will Biden's visit be for them as they continue to fight this war? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that it is very significant. And certainly the you know, anecdotal sense is that, uh, you know, Kyiv residents and, and Ukrainians were, were extremely moved by this evidence of commitment to their country and to their cause from the American president. You know, it's it's a powerful optic in, in that part of the world. And, you know, I remember when I was a Moscow bureau chief for The Washington Post going to Ukraine and covering the visit of actually Pope John Paul II. And it was kind of an extraordinary moment as well. Uh, you know, he was a symbol who had sort of waited out and outlasted and, and outwon the Cold War, even though uh, many Ukrainians were Orthodox. There was just this outpouring uh, to see that someone would come to this country on the front line, the fault line, you know, if you if you will, of Europe, uh, was very notable even then. And now that the country is at war and, uh, you know, that, that the president is risking his life even in some ways to do this, it's, it's, it's a pretty big message. We've seen some more critical analysis of Biden's trip, uh, arguing that it was the trip was uh, symbolically significant and a great show of support for Ukraine. But some people say that it came 12 months too late. Some of Ukraine's allies have also noted that Biden's trip did not include a promise to deliver things that Zelensky actually wants, like fighter jets. So, Susan, do you think this trip was heavier on symbolism than substance? Well, look, uh, it was a very good bit of political theater. Uh, it was as well choreographed as anything like it I've ever seen. I don't think you can fault it on its its excellent uh, and adept use of symbolism, including, by the way, this split screen moment of uh, two different, very different speeches on Tuesday after Biden's trip to Kiev, Biden's speech in Warsaw hours after Vladimir Putin's very different speech in Moscow. Uh, again, very, very well uh, played, it seems to me, by uh, the U.S. officials and an important statement. However, Biden now faces very significant criticism, I think, both from those who feel that he's not doing enough for Ukraine and then increasingly on the domestic political front, those who who fear you know, that he's doing more. It's already becoming an issue in our Republican presidential primary contest, I think. Uh, uh, and you saw uh, Donald Trump and, and Ron DeSantis practically competing with each other for who could criticize Biden more quickly for caring more supposedly about Ukraine than about middle America. We'll move on to the criticisms at home in a bit. But as you mentioned, both Biden and Putin gave speeches this week, and their remarks seemed pretty antagonistic. On Monday, Biden said, quote, Putin thought Ukraine was weak and the West, the West was divided. Was divided. He thought he could outlast us. I don't think he's thinking that right now. And the next day, in an address to the Russian parliament, Putin sort of mocked Ukraine's foreign allies over the fallout of this war, saying, quote, they provoked a growth of prices in their own countries, the closures of factories, the collapse of the energy sector, and they are telling their citizens that it is the Russians who are to blame. A few hours later, Biden was making another speech in Warsaw, denouncing Putin and the tactics that Russian forces have used in the war. Susan, what do you think the goal is of Biden's and Putin's speeches? Do you think that their remarks might change anyone's thinking about the war, either in U Russia, in Ukraine, or even on a global scale? Well, you know, I, I think there are multiple audiences. Certainly for, for uh, Biden's, uh, there are both uh, domestic political elements of it and also uh, a pretty big and important international audience for Biden's remarks. I thought it was very notable 
that he resumed his kind of very strikingly personal critique of Vladimir Putin 10 times, which is, uh, you know, in, in diplomatic terms, uh, you know, practically shouting with a bullhorn, uh, 10 times he called out Putin by name uh, and blamed him personally for the war, uh, as well as talking more broadly about uh, Russian war crimes and the like. So I think that was a significant message that I heard embedded in Biden's address. I think that that means that he was also speaking directly in a way, trying to speak to the Russian people. I don't know that anyone's listening for Vladimir Putin. I mean, look, you know, the lies and the gaslighting uh, are, are are really hard to listen to. But look at how effective this Russian propaganda has been. And, you know, I, it's not clear to me, uh, you know, what kind of information you can really glean from, say, uh, public opinion polling in a society that is unfree as Russia is today. Uh, but certainly the Russian people have not risen up en masse. But of course, it's significant if you want to understand, uh, you know, what's the narrative they're trying to plant with the Russian people. And very consistently, that narrative is we're not really at war with Ukraine. We're really at war with the United States and with the West. And, uh, you know, that's what this is. And it may be it's easier for Vladimir Putin to explain to his own people uh, that we're getting clobbered. Uh, you know, in this country, we thought we'd take over because it's not just the Ukrainians. It's actually the Americans, uh, at least, who are beating us up. Now, Putin did make the significant announcement that he was suspending Russia's participation in the New START treaty with the U.S. To his audience, it may look like playing tough with the West. For the world, it's the first time in more than 50 years there have been no arms control treaties, nor even arms control talks between East and West. So how should the White House interpret Putin's decision on this? Well, I mean, you know, the, the New START treaty is significant in part because it's the last major arms control uh, agreement that exists between the United States and Russia. Uh, and it's the last, you know, sort of thin read of that uh, kind of arms control regime that that helped to, to constrain the two superpowers and to bring eventually an end to the long Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States. So I think it's very worrisome that we seem to be very rapidly headed toward a, a world where there's no guardrails around these nuclear powers. And I think that's something that should concern everybody, especially because one of the things that has been most striking to me about the last year is the return of nuclear anxiety, nuclear blackmail, and saber-rattling to superpower geopolitics in a way that simply hadn't been the case at all you know, I mean, since I was in grade school in the 1980s. Uh, and, you know, Putin has, it seems to me, purposefully used nuclear threats and blackmail uh, as a tactic to seek to constrain uh, the United States from further involvement in the Ukraine war. And and, and it's actually been somewhat successful. Uh, and so that's, that's a great concern I have. Uh, and then it's one of the most negative developments that we've seen in the last year. During this second speech in Warsaw, Poland on Tuesday, Biden promised that Ukraine would never be a victory for Russia. The Ukrainian people are too brave. America, Europe, a coalition of nations from the Atlantic to the Pacific. We were too unified. Democracy was too strong. Biden also rebutted Putin's speech, which had been broadcast a few hours earlier, denying that the West wants to, quote unquote, control Russia. So what did you make of the speech in Warsaw, Susan? Well, look, uh, you know, once again, uh, you know, props to the speechwriters. I thought it was a strong speech, well-delivered, incredibly dramatic, 
backdrop of the historic Warsaw Castle, thousands of cheering Poles and Ukrainians outside in the in the cold and the dark. Now, it's interesting what wasn't in the speech, too. And I, I do have to say that because I think Biden essentially chose uh, the time-honored course, perhaps, of a politician not to talk about the things that there's not an agreement on. The most important thing is that it's just not at all clear how the U.S. really defines success right now. Is it really willing to commit to Ukrainian victory as opposed to the absence of Russian victory, which is how Biden defined it in that speech? Freedom is priceless. It's worth fighting for for as long as it takes. And that's how long we're going to be with you, Mr. President, for as long as it takes. They're not talking about what they would consider to be winning because there's some very thorny uh, unresolved issues and the administration is divided uh, internally on this question. Does it mean kicking Russia not only out of the territory it seized after February 24th of last year, but also the Crimean Peninsula, which it illegally annexed in 2014? Question mark because uh, it's unresolved, I think, by U.S. policymakers where they really come down on that fight. There's no denying that it is a substantial commitment to support a country like Ukraine through a war like this for a full year. Before Biden announced nearly half a billion more dollars of military aid to Ukraine on Monday, the U.S. had already committed nearly $80 billion in aid to Ukraine. The EU has so far pledged $3.3 billion, with individual nations like Germany and Poland giving more on top of that. But it has come at a price both politically and in the rise in the cost of energy. So what is the attitude toward Ukraine amongst European leaders now that we are a year out from the invasion? Things have happened in European foreign policy that you just would have thought were unthinkable a year ago. Uh, most notably, I would say in Germany, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, brand new to the job, announced basically that the most significant shift uh, in decades in German foreign policy said that not only... Is Germany going to spend more than 2% of its GDP on defense, but others should do so as well? Uh, that was really remarkable. Sweden and Finland uh, raising their hands and saying they want to abandon uh, decades, and in the case of Sweden, centuries of official neutrality to join NATO because of the threat they now understand Putin poses to the rest of Europe. Again, unthinkable a year ago, politically speaking. And so I do think that it's it's rewriting the security map. Energy policy, that's another way in which uh, you know Europe was quite dependent and, and big customers for Russian uh, energy, in particular Russian natural gas. Uh, in just a short year, they've made an enormous progress toward disentangling themselves from Russian energy supplies. That's a long-term structural effect that we are seeing from the war. As you touched on earlier, Biden is dealing with the fact that back home, some Republican lawmakers are saying that the U.S. should start pulling back on their financial support for Ukraine. What did Republicans make of Biden's trip to Kiev? Yeah, I mean, look, Republicans are divided. We should say that. Mitch McConnell, the Senate uh, Republican leader, strong supporter of Ukraine aid, he was saying at the Munich Security Conference over the weekend, well, all this bit about, you know, Republicans not supporting aid is overblown. But I, I think that actually that is the most significant political threat for, for Ukraine on the horizon is that the minority but growing faction of Republicans who are convinced that the U.S. is providing too much aid to Ukraine and don't want to continue it. I think that this obviously is something that 
Donald Trump, the former president, uh, has been saying nearly since the beginning of the conflict. And you now see others joining him. I think it's really telling that this is where some of the more ambitious Republican politicians, this is where they think the political opportunity lies. I think I and many Americans are thinking to ourselves, okay, he's very concerned about those borders halfway around the world. He's not done anything to secure our own border here at home. So I think it's very notable when you have Ron DeSantis, who normally doesn't, uh, hasn't spoken out that much on foreign policy issues until recently, you know, weighing in in this fashion. And as you said, there seems to be this emerging trend of some Republicans suggesting that Biden is putting Ukraine ahead of the U.S. For example, a Republican congressman Andy Ogles tweeted, quote, America last Biden visited Ukraine before visiting the people living through an environmental crisis in East Palestine, Ohio. Ogles is referring there to a toxic chemical spill after a train derailment in Ohio earlier this month. And Trump actually landed in East Palestine on Wednesday. I sincerely hope that when your representatives and all of the politicians get here, including Biden, they get back from touring Ukraine, that he's got some money left over because we're... Clearly, a number of Republicans are running with this line of Biden putting Ukraine ahead of the U.S. Susan, do you think these Republicans are echoing what voters are thinking about Ukraine right now? Do you get the sense that some Americans are becoming frustrated with the war now that it has stressed John for this long? Look, uh, public opinion polls, I think, have been quite clear that there is a softening of support and not just among hyperpartisan Republican primary voters. Uh, you know, this is something that there is uh, some concern on right and left, uh, although definitely more among Republicans uh, because there are loud voices such as Donald Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, you know, inveighing almost every day against the U.S. support for Ukraine. So, uh, you know, I think Republican politicians are both leading and following their voters. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. But um, I think it's a very significant risk factor in terms of this commitment that that Biden has made. You know, it's actually the home front even more than the eastern front that may determine uh, how long the United States is willing to go toe-to-toe with Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. In general, Susan, how long do you think this war might go on? I know that's a big prediction question, and I think it's notable that nobody who spoke this week, not Biden or Zelensky, Putin or NATO leaders, seem to signal that they see an end to this conflict anytime soon or really defined, as you said, what an end might look like. So what do you think it will take to end this war? You know, there are many uh, people here in Washington who who followed Vladimir Putin very closely who don't believe that it, they can really see this stopping as long as Vladimir Putin remains in power in Russia. And so that's that's one real worry. And I think that there's a lot of experience, unfortunately, that Russia has with, uh, quote unquote, frozen conflicts. And the danger here is that you you settle into almost a war of attrition. You know, if neither side is able to gain a de- decisive advantage in the coming uh, offensives and counteroffensives this spring and summer, that is a serious risk factor, according to many of the military experts I've spoken with. And, you know, then you could be talking about uh, not just months, but years. And it appears that that is at the heart of Putin's calculation. He is prepared to wait it out, that he believes that he 
has a longer time frame and a longer time horizon to accomplish his ends and that sooner or later we will have a change in government we'll have a change in our politics we'll simply tire of spending all this money on someone else's war and that he'll get his way and that's a risk factor and by the way one year into it 20 percent of ukraine has a hostile occupying force on its territory and you know that's just that's a terrible ongoing crisis Susan, we always like to ask a what else question on this podcast, something completely different from the focus of our discussion. So I want to get your thoughts on the news from last week that Senator John Fetterman has checked into Walter Reed National Military Medical Center to treat a case of depression. Since reports first broke of that news, there's been a lot of discussion about how and why he decided to tell people publicly that he was struggling with his mental health and that he was getting help for it. So often, politics can feel like a game of bravado where each side attempts to pick out the weaknesses of the other. What do you make of Fetterman's decision to publicly acknowledge that he is struggling with this? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's been a kind of a remarkable moment and a conversation around mental health and public life that is different, uh, I think, and significant in, in, in how it's different from others that I remember. I mean, you know, there's a, unfortunately a long tradition of public officials, senators, uh, even presidents covering up their depression, covering up their mental health struggles because the perceived political penalty for that was so severe. And actually, it did happen. Senator Thomas Eagleton was literally kicked off the Democratic uh, ticket back in 1972 when it was revealed that he had had electric shock treatments uh, for his depression. And, you know, obviously, this is a different time than the 1970s, and especially it came out, I think, right at the same time, this news about Fetterman, uh, that there was a new CDC study about the the widespread prevalence among teenagers of uh, anxiety and depression. It just, it feels like a moment, and I think for many people, it felt like a welcome moment that at least we were talking about this and airing this in, in a different way, uh, and that was in part because uh, Senator Fetterman made the, the courageous decision to, to speak up. Susan Glasser, author and writer at The New Yorker, thanks so much for joining me on Politics Weekly America this week. Well, thank you. And that's all for me this week. To mark the anniversary of one year since Russia invaded Ukraine, our colleagues will also be taking a look back. On Friday's episode of Today in Focus, Daniel Boffey tells the story of Dennis Cash, who is believed to be the first Ukrainian soldier killed by Russian forces on February 24th, 2022. And on Thursday's episode of Politics Weekly UK, John Harris looked at how Russia's invasion of Ukraine has changed the world, hearing from the Ukrainian Member of Parliament, Kira Ruddock, and The Guardian's Dan Saba. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens, and the executive producer this week is Nicole Jackson. Jonathan Friedland will be back with you next week. I'm Joni Grieve. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.